strange things are afoot at the Circle K. If I spoke about it, if I did, what would I tell you? I wonder. Would I tell you about the time? It happened a long time ago, it seems, in the last days of a fair prince's reign. Or would I tell you about the place? A small city near the coast, but far from everything else. Or, I don't know, would I tell you about her? The princess without voice. Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. Hey guys, it's Claire and I am from <laughs> Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures. Yes, I am still with the cowboy thing from last week. I think the cowboy thing is just fine. I don't have any major problem with it. I just don't hey, want you, you don't to attach it. You don't talk until I say you can talk. Oh, my God. You've created a monster. My name is first on the billing. Just FYI. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's Bill and Claire. Yes. I, you couldn't have made this podcast without me. Oh, man. We're doing accents. All right. Go ahead. Anyways, now you can talk, Bill. <laughs> hey everybody. Since you've since you've stated so clearly that your name is Beal, so I'm gonna call you Beal from the one. Uh no. No, you can you can carry on with dad. I think dad'll be just fine. Hey mom. <laughs> hey Claire. I was to say hey podcast. Oh. Hey podcast listeners. Anyways, we're here for Shape of Water, if I haven't already said that. You have not. Okay. Shape of Water. You have a picture of that in your bedroom. I do have a picture of that in my bedroom. In fact, I'll throw up the um, I'll throw up a picture of that and a link to the artist that made it because it's pretty great. It's a it's a picture of Eliza and Fishman in uh, getting into the bathtub that's in her apartment. It's pretty great. I love it. Um, does he? What's the creature's name in this? Is it I Gilman was or literally Fishman? about to ask you if they call him Gilman? I'm looking up the cast on Wikipedia right now. Amphibian Man is his name. Am- Amphibian man? Yeah. Oh, she never calls him that. No, no, she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't call him anything. That's true. And everybody else refers to him, I think, as the creature. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Why? Yeah, so speaking of the creature from the Black Lagoon, the reason that we decided to call an audible and uh, watch The Shape of Water instead of moving on to our Alfred Hitchcock deep dive uh, was because we really, I think, enjoyed watching Creature from a Black Lagoon. And so we're watching an updated version called The Shape of Water. Yeah. And The Shape of Water, Claire, is a pretty big deal. Um, Guillermo del Toro, who's made a bunch of fantasy movies, uh, definitely designed this to be a riff on Creature from the Black Lagoon. But this movie um, was a huge success as far as awards go. It was nominated for uh, more than 10 Oscar categories, which is a a regular yearly award system that a group of all the people who work in the film industry get together and they vote on who should win um, or be recognized for the best in their particular work category for that year. And it won for four Oscars. It won for Best Production Design, Best Original Score, and then Best Director and Best Picture. 
Uh, so it was a big crowd favorite. But, you know, that's what the critics thought, and that's what Guillermo del Toro's peers thought. I mean, I love the movie, but Claire, what did you think of this, just the movie-watching experience overall? What did you think of The Shape of Water? Yeah, a lot of nude parts in this. There were a lot of nude parts in this. In fact, there were way more nude parts than I remembered. I was shocked. I completely forgot. (laughs) Okay, can I just point out that I remembered all of the nude scenes? And so when you were like, hey, we should show Claire Shape Water, I was like, wow, that's progressive of you. Okay. (laughs) But Claire, in one of them, you covered your own eyes uh, to avoid watching. Which was the scene for that? Which one did you cover your own eyes over? Um, that was the one where she was, where she had, where he was like touching her collar and then she came back and then she took off her night rope and I just closed my eyes. Oh, when they were in the bathroom and they filled it with water? No. No, before that. Oh, when she got in the shower with Yeah, the first time that she gets in and there's a brief moment of full frontal nudity for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had completely forgotten that there was the sex scene with Michael Shannon in that movie. Yeah, and that is a seriously creepy scene. So gross. So gross. Did not care for it. I didn't really mind her doing, her like unbuttoning her shirt and then he like touches her. Sure. But I really hated the next part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, gross. if it's any consolation, so did everyone else watching. Like that that scene is designed to be, you know, usually when they show sex in a movie, it's supposed to be sexy and it's supposed to make you, you know, be like, oh, it's so romantic or, um, you know, wow, this is uh, really exciting. I'm glad that they're finally hooking up. It's or an expression whatever. of love in some way, whether it's a short period of love, a brief period of love, a deep emotional connection. It is almost always an expression of love. Right. And that's not what that was. Yeah. Um that she was She didn't like it. She was like, yeah. no, stop. She was not interested in what was happening and uh he wanted her to be silent, which is super weird, and he was bleeding on her, you know, from his hand injury. Yeah, there was nothing attractive or appealing about that scene, but it's not because you're 10. Was not attractive or appealing to anybody and it was designed to be that way. Because he's being gross in that scene as a person. He's being... Um, Is that like another way where he, th- he shows that he only cares about himself? And you got it. That's exactly right what on that the nose. is. Because sex is just like anything else you're doing with a partner. Like both people... Want to do it. Both people should want to do it and both people's interests should be same. important and the same, exactly. So obviously you would need to compare it to something that's you know, a little bit easier for you to understand. Well, a conversation. It's like a conversation. If we're having a conversation and I am doing all the talking and the person that I'm like, if I'm talking with your mom and I'm just running my mouth nonstop. That's me with my friend. (laughs) But it's, but it's, it becomes a very self-involved thing. It's not a shared experience. Right. And if you could imagine if you and your friend were playing Barbies, right? You're you're talking for your dolls, they're talking for their dolls. If you told them, I want you to be silent, what are you telling them there? You don't want them to play anymore? Yeah, I'm not interested in playing with you. I just want you to hold these dolls up because I don't have four hands. Or at best, they're, they're dolls themselves to you as far as you're concerned. They're not people with their own ideas. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a super creepy scene. Why was it designed to be that way, though? Well, I, was it needed? so we talked about this a little bit during the movie. I think more so than many of the other movies that we watched, 
The Shape of Water is telling you one story with the words that it uses and the, the characters and the things that they say. And it's telling you another story with pictures and images and actions. And to me, this scene with um, Michael Shannon's character and his wife is very telling about who he is in the same way that his scene when he was in the restroom and he came in and he found um, uh, the two women cleaning it and he decides to go ahead and use it anyways and have a conversation with them while he pees, which is really strange and She really just go to another bathroom. Right, exactly. They're in there working and he does not care that they're working. And in the same way, when he gives his speech about, look, a man either washes him before his business or after his business, but never both. And if he does both, it's a weakness of character. It's just being unhealthy. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but you're Really, definitely... the only way to be healthy in that situation is to either do it both times <laughs> or to do it the after. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But that was the same thing, kind of the conclusion that we came to for that scene was that it was telling you that he didn't want to be infected or bothered by the world's germs that, you know, to, to put on himself. But he did not mind if anybody else had to deal with his germs, which is the same way as him saying, I don't want to deal with anybody else's bullshit, but I don't mind subjecting everyone else to my will. That's how he thinks as a character. And I think that's very much the same in the scene with his wife. And so I think that's him. That's, I think that's Guillermo del Toro saying, this is not just how this guy is at work. This is how he is at home. And for him, home is as much work as it is anything else. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that scene. I think that there are several scenes in this movie. The sex scene between him and his wife is definitely one of them. Um, another one is when he's torturing the creature uh, in the lab. For no reason. It's not like he's It's not. He's, like he's not tortur- even asking any questions. Literally just being like, you, shh, will learn, shh, to, shh, be tamed, shh. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the scene where he is um, intimidating Eliza in his office, where he's talking about, you know, do you squawk and all that kind of thing. Oh, God, that scene. That's a super gross scene. What um, is he talking about anyways? He's basically suggesting that he would like to have sex with her. Uh, and she does not want to have sex with him. She's not interested in him that way. And he knows that. And that's why he is attracted to her. Specifically because she does not like him. Yeah, that's a bad thing. It's a very bad thing. Even though he already has a wife? Yep. Yeah. Does he love the wife or does he? Well, let's, let, no, I think that's a good question. Let's, let's talk about a different aspect. What, you remember when he goes car shopping? He goes to the place where they sell all the cars, right? Well, and- yeah, and he's like, and the businessman is just talking out. And he's like, it shows everybody that you're a man of business. And he's like, oh. I don't like the color of that card. He's like, though, it'll make you look like a businessman, a very classified one. And then he ends up buying it for no reason. Well, it's not no reason that he winds up buying it. Oh, yeah. He buys it to look like he's classy. And then he goes on the road and she's like, I don't think she, I think she like hates the car, but she's like, but she likes him. I I disagree. I, I think that she likes the car for exactly the story the salesman told him, which is it makes him look powerful. And it makes him look rich, and it makes him look strong. And that woman, but with a blue color. That well, that that a Cadillac in particular. But that's that's the myth that he's selling in the car dealership. That's the myth that um, that Michael Shannon's character wants to buy into. He wants that respect and that class, even if he just pays his way into it. And 
on the road, the woman validates that. She's attracted to his power and his status. He also paid $145 for a Cadillac. Cars are way more expensive now. Yeah, I mean, they don't really say the year for this movie, but they say it's in the tail end of a um, of a good prince's reign. So I think it's in the 60s um, before JFK is assassinated is when this movie's supposed to take place. But I'm not 100% sure if that's accurate. Who's JFK? John F. Kennedy was a president of the United States who was assassinated in 1963. I was thinking late 50s um, for two reasons. Number one, every time they show a television, the programs that are running on the TV are very famous black and whites from the 50s. And then secondly, I didn't think this the first time I watched it, but tonight uh, watching it, I got the distinct impression that Del Toro was designing basically a sequel to Creature. Oh, I think so too. Sure, yeah. The scientists escape at the end of the film and then, you know, they come back with more weapons and kind of what we were talking about last week. And this creature can regenerate. So even though we thought he was dead at the end of the first film, he's not. And they capture him. Michael Shannon's character says that they found him in the Amazon River Valley and that they extracted him and brought him up uh, from there. So costume's different. That's all. Yeah. Right. So if creature was, what do we say, 54? Yes. Yeah. So I was thinking that this movie was like 55, 56-ish. Yeah. Well, okay. But I, I guess either way, What they're really getting at with Michael Shannon's character is not just him, I think, as a person, but the idea of what the American dream is, because that's what he's chasing, right? He's chasing the American dream. He's a representative of America and all the things that it's going for, at least as far as Guillermo del Toro is arguing for this particular movie. And it's very consumer-oriented and look-oriented and about being good and wholesome, which is why Eliza's friend who lives across from him, his job is to sell big products, big multinational corporation products by painting these down-home images of men with their wives and children having this brand of food. If you have this brand of food, this is what you look like to your neighbors, and this is what matters. Well, and the general's speech is particularly telling, I think, because Michael Shannon says, you know, I'm a decent man, and the general says, do you know why we sell decency, why we export decency? Because we have no use for it. And I think we there is referencing the American government, and his mention of selling decency has to do with, like, this is why we're telling the public that you should be wholesome and, you know, have this sort of idyllic life that kind of resembles a Rembrandt painting. Because everything the government is doing is the opposite of that. I don't think so, because there are multiple sequels in the same DVD to that movie. It must have come out after that. Yeah, Because they say that multiple scientists died before they got to that point. No, that's true. That's a good point. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I I think so much as sort of what the year of this movie winds up being is, it doesn't matter exactly what year it is. It's it's kind of the age range. to, to put it in a particular perspective, because this was, you know, in, in the 50s and 60s, America had just won World War II. It was the only economy in the entire globe that was still functioning after the end of World War II. And we were an economic powerhouse. Everybody was getting rich. Everybody was uh, having jobs. And it was a really productive, um, right. m- yeah, lucrative time 
to be alive. But that came with kind of an image. And so Richard Jenkins plays Giles. Did you notice, Claire, that Giles is not straight, that he's attracted to men? He is. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when he was going to that diner all the time and he was buying that pie and having a conversation with the guy who worked the counter? He was attracted to the guy who worked the counter. And when he revealed his attraction to the guy who worked the counter, that guy threw him out and said, you got to go. That was, remember you asked me to repeat that line where he says, this is a family establishment. The implication there is that being gay is somehow perverse and therefore not family friendly, which was a very pervasive attitude in that time period. We obviously know that's not true. Because I mean, in modern family, one of the families is a gay family. Yeah. You have a daughter that they adopted and then two men who married. Yeah, and that's a family show now, but it would not have been in the 50s or the 60s. Do you remember when we were talking about Frankenstein, we talked about this idea of other and the act of normal and abnormal makes a definition and a judgment that says if you are this way, you are good. And if you are not this way, you are not good. Do you remember that conversation? For example, in the Westward Expansion, The Indians were counted as not good just because they were Indian. Native Americans. Native Americans. Yeah. They were were told that they weren't normal because they were Native. When really, you're talking to the people who own your land. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of for the shape of water. And and honestly, a little bit from the creature from the Black Lagoon, but really for the shape of water. That's what Guillermo del Toro is working with as an idea for his story. You know, it's not just a love story between Eliza and the amphibian man. It's really looking at the idea of how America would tell people what was normal, that being a white man or a white woman married with two or three kids, uh, working at a job and contributing everything that you can to that job as normal. And if you weren't doing exactly that, you were not normal and you were not good. And the movie touches on racism. It shows um, the guy who works at the diner telling the African-American couple that they're not allowed to sit and eat at the bar, even though all the seats are open. And Michael Shannon saying that God looks a little more like him than like Zelda. Yeah, than like Zelda. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of that that goes on in the course of this movie. We talked a little bit about Michael Shannon's character. We've talked a little bit about the way that Guillermo del Toro sort of explores the idea of America and being othered. I sort of get the idea that Guillermo del Toro is very um, sympathetic to the creature and to people who are not like what normal is in this particular movie. It seems like uh, all of them are the heroes of this story. Do you think that's that's true, Claire? Symbolize it for me, please. So Eliza has a physical disability, right, unable to speak. Zelda is African-American and a woman. That's kind of a double punch. Giles is gay. The creature obviously is not technically human. It looks human, but it's not. Yeah. And then even Hofstetler, I think you could make the argument, is an othered character because he, number one, um, is does not have the same kind of bloodthirsty instincts that all the you know super alpha men around him do. And then secondly, he's Russian. I think Dimitri's big problem was that by the end of the movie, he really wasn't American or Russian because his Russian handlers disowned him and were going to kill him. 
because he didn't follow the mission protocol because he believed in saving the amphibian man. And the Americans didn't have any value for him anymore because he didn't tow the party line and he wanted to save the creature. So at the end of the day, he lost both of his nationalities over being interested in preserving life, which I think is very telling. Um, What did you think about the design of Amphibian Man? What do you think about the look of the creature in this movie? Eyes are awesome. I'm pretty sure that that does it with the creature too, where the eyes go from one from the corner that if you that if so if you were to stand in the middle of the room, the corners that were closest to the two walls would be like the part that it came out of, and the corner that's closest to your nose bridge would be the part that it that it closes at. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure the creature had that too. Mm-hmm. Just it went up and down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um. A lot of animals that go underwater have an inner kind of eyelid um, that will close, uh, that they can see through, um, but will protect their eyes from the water as they're underwater. Like fishies? I don't know if fish have it or not. I'm not. We've really exhausted my knowledge of alternate eyelid structures at this point. I've said literally all the words I know about it. <laughs> words I know. Eyelids, under eyelids. Not fishies. (laughs) That's all the words I know. I liked how his suit glowed blue. Oh, yeah, that was cool. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they, since it was made in like 19 something. Since it was made in 19 something. um, Well, hold on. No, the movie was made in what, Dad? 2017. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I was telling you. It's designed to look old, but it was made very recently. Oh, okay. So then they probably had this stuff to like use a remote control and then the lights turn on. Yeah. But it's like green lights that like, that like glow all, like it's always glowing, but they could choose what color it is and they chose it dark green to match his suit. They probably had the, the technology to do that to make it look like it's not glowing what it is. My guess would, if I had to guess, I mean, because they could do that in a computer with visual effects after the fact. My guess would be that they would still line the suit with some kind of light so they would have something to hang on to that they could work with or respond to and the actors could respond to. And then they would go in with the visual effects afterwards and in the color grading of it, punch up the blueness of those colors and make them much more electric in the final product. That would be my guess. Speaking of the color work, I, I one of the things that I noticed this time that I, I don't think I appreciated on my first watch um, that I thought was kind of cool was the use of color in Eliza's costume. Because in the very beginning of the film, she's dressed all in that teal, which is such a recurring color in that movie. You know, oh, yeah. his car is teal. All of their uniforms are teal. Um, her house has sort of a teal hue to it. Most of the lab has a teal hue to Most it. apartment. Excuse me, you're right. The because apartment. we gotta be like ver- fairly certain that it is, because some of the listeners might not have seen the movie, even though it was fairly recent. They could not have been. They're just listening to the podcast first to catch some things that they might miss in the movie afterwards. So we gotta be fairly pacific. So it's not a house; it's an apartment. Okay, and then um, after the first time that she and the creature uh, have sex, she shows up to work wearing red pumps. Um, and she has a little red headband. And then later on, they show her with a red cardigan. And then in the very final scene where she's about to set him free and then ultimately ends up embracing her own freedom, she's wearing a red coat that covers her entire outfit. 
Yeah, I I think kind of by the end of the movie, she's she sheds that away too, though, because I I do I think kind of at that point the red is sort of the color of like what's almost expected of her for romance. Like the teal is the American dream, the dream of promise and striving and working hard, and the red is the color of romance that they're uh, selling this idea of what that looks like. And that final shot of her in the water with the creature amphibian man up against her and that red pump falls away from her. I think that's her shedding all of the ideas of expectations of what she should be or shouldn't be and embracing who she is. Yeah, that was cool. Speaking of who she is, I'm curious what you think, Claire and Dad. I remember the first time I watched this, I thought that the lines on her neck that ultimately turn into gills meant that she had maybe was born a sea creature and then he like healed her and made her gills work again. On this watch, I thought, well, you know, maybe not. Maybe he just turned her scars into something functional so that they could be together. This, what do you think? There is a scene where the, she says, where one of the people are talking for her, and she's saying with her side language that she was found on the road and she was... River. She was found river. on the river. She was found on the river with the scars. And she said that she wasn't bored with it, but she got the scars from somebody. Well, I don't know that she knows, though, because you don't have memories of being a baby. So everyone assumes that they that those were injuries because why else would you have them? Because nobody's walking around thinking that she had gills at some point. So I think that that's an assumption. Maybe that's why she's left by a river, because she was because she hadn't turned into a full sea creature yet. And her parents weren't going to like couldn't take her back until she had turned into Oh, that is an interesting thought, and not one I had heard, I had thought of. So, so she isn't she isn't like the child of sea creatures. She's born to human. She has some kind of genetic mutation that gives her gills, or maybe something that's approaching gills. And because she's different, they dump her on the side of the river. I no, said not what you're saying. One of the family members of her is a sea creature. Oh, okay. and then she. Like, and then her mother is also, like, her family is a sea creature, but she was, but she was a human and her gills didn't work properly, so they couldn't leave her in the water. They set her on the road, but to, like, probably to sleep, because I'm pretty sure that she was founded, like, a sleeping thing, and then somebody took, and then they took her away, then they took her away, and I think, and I think what happened was that they just left her to sleep, and they didn't realize that they were in a public place. All right, so I want to go back to what you said a second ago, though. So there is another possibility that I still had not thought of, that she is uh, still othered, still undesirable because she's different, but the reason that she's different is because she's much more human than the rest of her family. And so they kind of dump her like, oh, well, here, you, you need to live among the humans then. That's a really interesting theory, too. Dad, what do you think? Um, I, for... Me, I, I think the literal in this story doesn't matter so much. Um, I think that this is a fairy tale. And I think that the marks on her neck are a physical manifestation of her otherness. So they are the birthmark that show that she is different from everybody around her. And it doesn't matter how she's different. It matters that she is different because we don't care how people are different. You are either the same or you are not the same. And the uniqueness of individuals is irrelevant. 
Um, so for her, that's just the marking. That's that's the mark of difference that she carries with her in this story, which I think because the story works with it so much is is essential as far as like fairy tales go. And then the idea of transformation of the mark of otherness into the thing that makes her herself at the end is the part that makes it a, sort of a conclusion to a fairy tale. So in and of themselves, it doesn't matter where they came from. You see that she's educated, and she put the towel only under the door, when she probably knows that the water's going to seep out through the other cracks. I like that scene. And again, I, I look at this movie as a fairy tale, but I like that scene because it shows to me it is that she has this very deep and rich and fulfilling interior life and existence and ideas and romance and love and it is bursting at the seams to come out of her and she wants to be able to share it with everybody and she can't and when she meets amphibian man and can share some of that with her they show you it's like all of her passion is contained in this small room and it's just bursting into the world around her and she doesn't know how to let it out And that's what she struggles with for the movie is how to get the love that's inside of her out and make a connection with the world that matters where she feels like she's seen and valued. You know, her friendship with Giles is just friendship. You know, she's lonely. He's lonely. They become friends. Same for uh, her relationship with Zelda. Um, It's a lot of one way speaking. Zelda cares about her. Giles cares about her. But she's really not sharing all of herself in that. And uh, so to see that room bursting at the seams with water leaking out into the theater and into her house and into the building is more of a f- like fairy tale imagery to me. It doesn't matter um, that, that she doesn't put the towels there or anything like that, because that's not like to me, that's not what that scene is about. It's not meant to be realistic. Back to the thought that I was talking about originally when I got sidetracked with the towel stuff, she Fills it up with water that she takes one breath, and I'm saying one, and she goes under the water. Mm-hmm. And I think what they're estimating is it's probably like 20 minutes or something like that because it's a long amount of time. So she must have always been a sea creature. Also, maybe the reason she can't talk, which is what I thought of when you said like she's an abnormal person who can't talk. Well, I'm not saying she's abnormal. I'm just saying to the it back. She's not what matches the popular definition of normal. Yeah. And so... I think she was, I think she can't talk because she's a creature. The guy that she likes is also a creature and can't talk. She can't talk. She has to sign. I don't get why I keep putting three fingers together over top of each other. Because that's what I <laughs> egg, like to egg, call it a sign. Egg is all I see. Yes. You're, 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 you're going, egg, egg, egg. Egg, <laughs> egg, egg, egg. Maybe that's because it's the first word she teaches them how to sign. Egg. So I'm like, that's a special word. Egg, egg, egg. Let's sign this word. Egg. I'm curious. What do you think about the narrator? Which, I mean, is Giles, but he's acting as the narrator. What do you think about him describing her as the princess? I think he likes her. Well, but he's gay, so he doesn't. He doesn't like her like romantically. No, I meant. I didn't mean that. I meant he. I meant he like. He's like very fond of her, and she's fond of him. Like, probably she probably seems as like a. He's like a father to her, since she never had a father because her creature father left her by the river because she needed to live with the humans until she could be like a creature. So you think that it's it's like the way that a father refers to his daughter as princess? Hmm. Do you think at the end of the movie when? 
Giles narrates and says, I like to think that they lived happily ever after. Do you think that's what happens, or do you think that she's dead at the end of the movie? Ed, they show her a lot. Well, they're Gills. showing you what Giles hopes happened. I don't know. I mean, that's really the question. I don't think it says one way or the other how you have to think about it, but did you think about it as like literally her and the creature go to live together? Because, I mean, there, she probably survives because there's not a real scene that what happens is, like, she pu- bursts up in the water as alive. Yeah. Or maybe she just passed out because of the blood. Like, because if you're chest gutted, it'll take you a while to die. You won't <laughs> die instantly. That's true. I think she really does. I think that really is what happens. I don't think That she goes happen. to live with um, the creature? Yeah, because he's like, I always hoped that that something like this would have happened, like, happens. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I think he's saying that this is, that this is what he hopes, ha- that this is what actually happens, and this is, and that is similar to what he hopes happens. Yeah. I, I think the way that you interpret that says a lot about how you think about the world. I think it makes you a romantic to think that they um, live happily ever after together. And I think it makes you optimistic for the future, hopeful for the future, that things can be good, that the end of that movie works out where she gets to spend her life with somebody who sees her for who she is. That's funny because I was literally just sitting here thinking that my conclusion is that they live together, or at the very least that she survived, from a purely overly pragmatic perspective, sort of forgetting that it's a fairy tale and just looking at it very logically. Um, her body was dumped in a closed canal, they would definitely have been able to recover it. <laughs> so, like, well, unless, the fact that he doesn't know means she survived. Yeah, but Creature from Black Lagoon, um, uh, Gilman definitely walks off with Kay and puts her in a cavern just on a rock to have her hang out. Like, I mean, he loves her, but his expression of it is not optimal. Uh, so, I mean, maybe he just drags Eliza off and then leaves her on a rock outside of Baltimore Harbor or something. I don't know. But I mean, he truly loves her. <laughs> I think so. I do. I do. Definitely think so. more than Kay. <laughs> what about you, Danielle? Anything that we didn't get to that you think we should talk about? I mean, I don't think it needs like a full fledged conversation point because we've spent a lot of time talking about Michael Shannon's character. Um, but I do think it's interesting that both of the husbands in this movie. Um, are really not shown in a very favorable light. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting commentary by Guillermo del Toro about men and women and the um, subdivision of labor within relationships in our society because Michael Shannon is the villain throughout the whole movie and he's a real creep to his wife. And then, is it Brewster? Is that yeah. Zelda's husband? Yeah. You know, we have no reason to believe that he's a villain at all and he's not any nicer to Zelda than Michael Shannon's character was to his wife. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. What was the scene that? What was the thing that he said when she was finished? When he was like, "You won't call that telephone." He he tells her straight up that she is not allowed to warn her friend, and she's like, "Uh, yeah, I do what I want." And then she says something along the lines of, "You can't be bothered to talk, and now you won't shut up." Because one, if you've paid attention to her sort of monologue as she's talking to Eliza throughout a lot of the movie, a lot of her complaints about her home life center around the fact that her husband ignores her. He doesn't talk to her. He doesn't engage with her. He expects her to wait on him. 
He expects her to cook for him. She works all night, comes home, and then has to make him breakfast. And he never says thank you, and he never has any conversation with her. So he couldn't be bothered to talk to her in any way that would make her feel good about herself or her life. But when he has an opportunity to stand up for her, he chooses instead to throw her and her friend under the bus. I wouldn't characterize it as throw her and her friend under the bus. I would characterize it as throw her friend under the bus to protect the both of them from a negative outcome. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm taking this from a you're with me or you're against me standpoint. I'm not saying he's a good guy because he says, don't hurt my wife. Go get the mute woman who actually took her, uh, took the creature, I mean. So I think he gets his wife out of it. It's, I don't, I don't, again, it, I think the movie kind of fumbles a little bit in its ex- exploration of that relationship because I think you could read that also as he has some concern, but he also does not know how to express his feelings or his interaction with his wife. I mean, there's communication barriers everywhere in this movie. And there's a lot of expectation for people to couple up. That's what they're selling, the idea of marriage and family values. And I think it's as true then as it is now that, you know, men are not groomed to share their feelings and share emotions and share their lives with somebody they're groomed to provide. And I wonder if there's not some commentary going on with that. I don't know that it's great because I think there's not enough of it there. And so it really lends a lot to... Like what, like your perspective and how you read it versus how I read it and what I think can be, I think, pretty opposed fairly with what you actually see on the screen. The only thing that bummed me out was that he is like, Zelda, go get the door. And I'm like, I will never answer the door in this house. But it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I'm terrified of strangers. <laughs> I literally have a shirt that says, I shake hands, not ginger martini. I, don't, nope, I say around. ginger martinis, not hands. Of course, you're a, you're somewhat afraid of strangers because you're afraid of their germs. I, yeah, yeah, accurate. But no, but I, the man I don't know is I mean. just lazy. He's like, go get the door for me. At the very least, it definitely clearly demonstrates the unfair power balance between men and women, especially in that era. Because, I mean, even with him not being able to express his desire to interact with his wife or or express correctly his desire to protect his wife's interests, it definitely plays out in a way that is like, I say what happens and the decision is made. It's like that dude from The Mandalorian, Nick Nolte's character, whatever his name is. I have spoken. If this was like a modern thing, it would be like, honey, I'll get the door for you. Honey, get the door for me. Yeah. Yeah. That would be definitely like a comic scene, like a short comic scene from Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Honey, I'll get the door for you. Honey, get me the door. Yeah. He'll be like, I'll get the door for you. And then he's and then he's so used to having her as a maid, he'll be like, honey, get the door for me. I promised my honey that I would do it. Well, what did you think about the relationship between the men and the women on the screen and how they interacted with each other? Well, I mean, what I was trying to say, what you guys were just rat, ra- um, rambling on about about the uh, about the husbands and wives in this, it, I was trying to say is that is that how the how they take a girl as the main character is different, like in the other in the creature of the Black Lagoon. Kay is definitely not the main character. Yeah, I know. I'm saying the girl. I'm saying the the yeah. like the main girl. Yeah, because he, like like um, Kay's the only girl, but she's the main girl, and um, <laughs> that is it. 
extremely positive way to interpret that. Kay is the only girl, therefore she is the main girl. <laughs> no, I'm saying she's the she whatever. No, not whatever. I I I'm I'm serious. I mean, I I think that's that's a way that you wind up looking at movies and I'm sure that's part of how they sold the part to the actress that played Kay and Creature from Black Lagoon. You're going to be the leading lady, but she is definitely not the main character of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. I wasn't saying that she's no, I know. You, I, I thought you were saying the opposite, was that in The Shape of Water, Eliza is the main character. Well, Eliza's the main girl. Not Despite the fact she's the main character, she's the main girl. Because you see her in almost every scene. Do you think that women are not often the main characters in movies? Do you notice that a lot? For you, it might, but for me, I watch mostly women. Do you notice that there is a shortage of films where women have lead roles that are not part of a couple. Oh, okay then, yes. I thought he meant at any women in particular. I was like, meh. No, like there's a lot of movies where there's a male lead and a female lead, but there are not a whole lot of movies where it's just a female lead. Well, for example, the Thundermans, they have a couple, but they're not the main characters. The main characters are are twins, uh, Max and Phoebe. A boy and a girl. Yeah, but they're related. They're not a couple. No, but the point is, though, that... If a girl is a main character in a in a show or a movie, almost always there is an equal character that is a man in that movie. Right. It could be her brother, it could be her boyfriend, it could be her husband, but there's always a boy. It could the, be her best friend. It could be sure. anybody, but it's the number of lines that they would say in the movie would usually be about the same. I, and I think part of what makes Shape of Water unusual is how central Eliza is to the story and how she is really the focus of the story. And I don't think it never happens. That's not my point, but it's it stands out for that. So my thought was that um, in, the mo- in Creatures of the Black Lagoon, which I clearly state this where we talk about this forever, is that every time she screams, the man trips over her to save her. Mm-hmm. Like sure. David kicks the creature's hand out of the window and slams it and closes it. When she screams at the beach, the man comes and fights the creature and dies. When she comes up, they're like, they're like, oh no, you swam too far. But there's none of that in this movie. Yeah, mostly they're tell she's telling the boy that he's going too far. Well, my, my favorite part about this movie is that um, Eliza's plan is the one that they go with. And when she asks Giles to help, he says no. And when he comes back to say, you know what? I made a mistake. I want to help. He doesn't say, here's my plan. This is what we're going to do. He says, what do you need me to do? And then he does it. Even though he's terrified, he does it. He's like, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. And she smiles and he's like, what do you need me to do? And then they, and then the next couple of scenes, he's like painting the car. He's getting his fake ID ready. Yeah, I mean, really, the only time in the movie that I can think of where Eliza is rescued by a man, I think there are a couple situations where she's rescued by Zelda, but the only situation where she's rescued by a man is when she is shot. Yeah. You know, presumably the creature heals her, and she's shot protecting him. Yeah, you know the the Michael Shannon's character is trying to shoot the creature. He just gets Zelda, uh, not Zelda. He gets uh, Eliza in the crossfire. Oh, I disagree. I think you think. Oh yeah, that dude Strickland straight up shoots her on purpose. Yeah, he hits what he aims for. That's 
I, I believe. He shot the creature twice. He shot her in the gut on purpose. That's my take, at least. She definitely, prob- mo- she most likely isn't dead. She probably passes out at the point where he wakes up and takes her down because she wouldn't have died that fast. Oh, speaking of wouldn't have died that fast, the best scene in the movie is when the creature stands up and he's all blue and everything and he looks down at the bullet holes in his chest and he wipes the bullet holes away. Like That's a pretty boss move. And then the best line in the movie is, fuck, you are a god. God. (laughs) That's awesome. Right before he kills him. (laughs) I also liked, is he a god? I don't know. He ate a cat. (laughs) All right. I think think that's probably more than enough conversation on The Shape of Water. I know I love this movie and I was glad to take a detour to watch it. I think it's uh, every bit as awesome as people say it is. Uh, Claire, do you want to take us out of the episode? Like I was telling you, we're going to end it out with me again. Yes, I'm not. I'm putting the peace sign up, but we're not going yet. I just like to put peace sign up when I'm happy. Anyways, be sure to follow us at B A C E A Podcast on Twitter. Make sure to check out the chat cast and any other podcast that my dad would normally say. I haven't completely memorized his thing. Uh, the It My Chat Cast, which you can find, and then also the In the Mouth of Darkness podcast we just had our uh end of year dorkies talking about our favorite movies of 2019 and at the itma chat cast you can find uh me and brad and lisa uh interviewing all sorts of awesome People. filmmakers and uh, i am in one of those yeah you were in one of those um andre gower and henry mccomas there you go for wolfman's got nards all right so those are the podcasts keep going make sure to give us a five star rating subscribe to us subscribe to all the podcasts don't give us anything under five. Thank you very much. Don't be like a wampa and stay alive with the podcast. Peace out. <laughs> okay. Don't cheat on us.